Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first-time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host. If she could learn any instrument now, it would be the saxophone, Leanne Hughes. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you create unpredictable workshop experiences that predictably work. Before I dive into introducing this show and my brilliant guest, a quick shout out. I put a poll in for listeners on my newsletter, The Flip Chart, and asked them to vote between you know three different topics to run in a virtual masterclass. The votes are in, people. So I'm bringing you the five unpredictable ways to start a workshop that predictably work. This is a free masterclass coming to you in early March, just before the boot camp kicks off. So you can register over at leannehughes.com forward slash start. Okay, gosh, I have been so excited to bring this episode to you. If you've listened into my interview with Mark Bowden, you would have heard us talk about today's guest, one of my all-time favorite thought leaders and authors, Michael Bungay Stenya. Mark and Michael are great mates, and it was really quite funny hearing Mark relay how they co-facilitate their sessions. So I feel like this episode is a part two of that interview. Michael Bungay-Stania is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency. His book, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of the century, one of my favorite management books. He sold over 700,000 copies, and he has a new book out now called The Advice Trap. In 2019, He was named the number one thought leader in coaching by Thinkers 50, the so-called Oscars of management. And Michael was also the first Canadian coach of the year and has been named a global coaching guru since 2014. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a company that champions coaching skills as a force for manager excellence and leader capability. He is a compelling keynote speaker combining practicality, humor, and an unprecedented degree of engagement with the audience, which you'll hear about in this conversation. I was super lucky to record this conversation with Michael when he was in Brisbane late last year and had this filmed as well. So you want to watch this YouTube video as Michael brought his facilitation toolkit with him to the interview and he dumps it out to show what's in it and describes his favorite facilitation tools. This episode is useful for you as we cover a ton of topics relating to finding your purpose, doing good work and great work, how a room should be set up, how can we be more coach-like in our interactions and give less advice when it is so tempting. Michael also shares specifics on how to deliver activity instructions, including how to specify who should talk first when you pair two people up. This is where he really brings his humor in. And actually, speaking of humor, one of the reasons I think Michael is one of my favorite authors is because he is that funny. That's one thing. But you see it in the way that he writes and the way that he chooses his words. It's highly intelligent while also keeping it real and practical. But it's also why you'll hear me laughing over the top of much of what he says. So apologies for that. So speaking of advice, as I said, Michael's latest book, The Advice Trap, drops on the 29th of February, but you can pre-order it today. I've pre-ordered my copy and I cannot wait to dive in. 
I could go on and on about how tremendous this guy is, but you'll hear it for yourself in the conversation. To order the book, view the video, or if you'd like to connect with Michael, visit the show notes over at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 106. And you'll also find a link there to the flip chart. This is a free Facebook community with over 570 facilitators from all over the world sharing their favorite workshop ideas and activities. Now onto the show. I'm so delighted to welcome to the First Time Facilitator podcast, Michael Bungay-Stania. Thank you so much for joining us Perfect. in beautiful Brisbane. As a first time facilitator, I'm looking forward to learning stuff. You are so not a first time <laughs> facilitator. And I want to talk about that actually. Right. Not really about your career pivots, but you studied law in Australia. I did. You went to Oxford. I did as well. So when did you actually get your start in front of a room running yeah. these workshops? How did that happen? Well, I got my start performing in front of people as a three-year-old. And I don't have any memory of this, of course, but my mum basically said, look, I go out buying groceries and I'd walk up to strangers in Woolworths going, hi, my name's Michael. I can hop. Do you want to see me hop? I can run. Do you want to see me run? And my mum, who is lovely, but she's not particularly kind of show-offy, neither is my dad. She's Mm. like, who is this alien child? And what is he doing? And I captain my soccer teams as I went through. So, you know, captaining a soccer team is like facilitation, just pushier. And then at high school, I was like the captain of my whatever house at high school. So that's kind of up in front of people and talking. Mm. So there's a way with facilitation. It's like part of it's around being in front of a room. And then there's a kind of fork in the road, which is like, are you a performer, like a keynote speaker or whatever, or are you a facilitator? Mm. And those are different skills, mm. or as they can be, but there's a way of being used to having an audience. So I've been doing the audience thing for a long time. I got into training really in my first job after university, and I worked for a company that was in the world of kind of innovation and creativity, and they started doing training, and that meant doing me facilitating groups. And... I've always just had a pretty good sense of group dynamics and the like, but I've also just, I've studied to try and become a better facilitator. Yeah. It's funny because we've got a mutual friend, Jenny Blake, and she says when you're trying to sort of plant and figure out what your strengths are, something useful to do is look back at your childhood and the things that really gave you joy. And so that Woolworths, that's just something internal, right? Well, exactly. You know, I wrote a book eight years ago, nine years ago called Do More Great Mm. Work, which is like, how do you find the work that lights you up? You know, if there's three types of work in the world, bad work, good work, and great work, and bad work is soul-sucking work, and good work, I, I think of it as your job description. So it's important and productive and getting things done. But great work is more about work that has more impact mm. and work that has more meaning. One of the ways to give you a clue to your great work is to look back to those peak moments from your past and go, well, what happened then? What's my, what are the stories there? What does that story tell me about me? Mm. And what's nice about that as an exercise is that it transcends your experience and your training because your experience and training is a little deceptive, right? Like I have a law degree. If I'd been a lawyer, not only would that have dragged the legal profession down, but I'd be a sad, unhappy, depressed, you know. But very wealthy. Well, I don't know. I honestly, I would have been such a bad lawyer. I'd have been like one of those lawyers who are part-time in a court and part-time busking outside the court to try and raise some money. So all to say what you've been trained at or even what you've 
ticked off the boxes in your career don't necessarily tell you where to play to your strings. No, they don't. It takes yeah. a lot of sort of soul searching and, yeah. and actually taking that time out to reflect. Yeah, exactly. It takes some work about, to figure that stuff out. It does. It does. Yeah. And it's so funny. And I think you call yourself the Simon Sinek, but you're funnier than him. Is that, <laughs> well, did, you, did so someone didn't say, say that about somebody you? Somebody said or that <laughs> in, a, in a thing that I did as part of the feedback. And yeah. I was like, oh, I'll take that. That's Because that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Just in recently, these courses, we've been running big construction companies, asking people the question of why they do what they do. Yeah. And usually you find people are very confronted by that where yeah. they've finished university or a trade, they've climbed the corporate ladder for 20, 30 years, now they've sort yeah. of got more wealth and they've got responsibilities and families yeah. and, and you ask them, why do you do what you do? Yeah. And they don't know how to answer it. They haven't no, done that. It's a terrible, terrible question. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of joking, but... So it's a destabilizing question is probably okay. the best way to put it. Yeah. And part of it is I think there comes a responsibility with asking that question, which mm. is, do I have permission in the context we have or the relationship you have mm -hmm. to ask that destabilizing question because mm -hmm. it's hard. It's a really hard question to answer. Even if you spend a bunch of time staring at yourself in the metaphorical mirror. Like, I mean, I do that. I think about my career a lot mm -hmm. and what I'm trying to do and who I'm trying to be when I grow up. And I still find that a hard question to answer. Really? Yeah. Because as someone externally looking at you, I think you've got it all together. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. <laughs> Let me introduce you to all the people who know me well, who are like, yeah. oh, no, no, he's got an, he doesn't know what the hell really? is going on. I don't know if that's encouraging or discouraging for someone like me who's sort of, I quit corporate in February yeah. and I'm trying to figure out what I want to focus on and then to hear that you're sort of much further ahead of me yeah. and you're still asking yourself those questions. Well, life is a series of cycles, mm. and you have moments of going, oh, this is great. I'm kind of in the, in the zone. I know what I'm doing. I'm feeling fulfilled, and I'm making enough money, and I'm having the impact I want to have in the world, which are three good kind of things to think about, which is like, does this light me up? Mm. Does this help me afford life? Does this make a difference in the world? And then there are times where, you, where transitions happen. You know, and that, I mean, uh, there's a... Who wrote the book called Transitions? doesn't matter. I should know. William Bridges. William Bridges wrote a book called Transitions. Nice save, nice save. Well, I just, uh, <laughs> I mean, in two weeks' time, a year anniversary edition of that book is coming out, and I just re I wrote an intro to it, so I should be able to remember <laughs> that. A bit embarrassing that I didn't. But, you know, so for me, for instance, three or four months ago, I gave up being the CEO at Box of Crayons, mm. which is a company I started 17 or 18 years ago. So it's a very interesting time for me because I'm stepping away from being the leader of this company that I've run for 17 or 18 years. And it's really interesting and confronting to see how much of my own identity is entangled in that. Big time. And now I'm like handing it over. So I'm like, okay, well, who am I now? <laughs> and who do I want to be when I grow up? And oh my God, I'm already 50. <laughs> so I actually am technically growing up. So I better get, you know, and actually I just, part of it's like, there. is there an answer? Well, not really. There's a process. So mm -hmm. just hang out in the process. It's really interesting your transition now. So you're no longer the CEO. Right. So let's talk about coaching and advice. Sure. And the person that's stepping into the role of CEO. How tempting is it for you to want to give them advice, even though you know you're not meant to? Well, is it tempting? Or? Here's what makes that easier for me. The mm. first is Shannon is an amazingly smart woman. Secondly... I was not that great a CEO. I was a CEO. <laughs> Initially, I was the CEO because I was the only person in the company. So I looked around and I was like, okay, I'll have to be the CEO because I'm a company of one. And then thirdly, the company that she's leading is already changing in a way that I, I have little expertise in because mm -hmm. she's growing it in a different way and trying to evolve it. You know, we're trying to 
pivot, if you like, to a different way of serving the world. So I've barely got any expertise that I could offer you, even if I, <laughs> if I wanted to. But a transition from a founder to somebody else is notoriously difficult because mm -hmm. the founder's DNA is wrapped up in everything. Mm. You know, the values of the company are my values. The history of how we do things around here is the history of how I do things around here. Oh, baby. Yeah, mm. so it's hard to extract myself from that. So we've hired Jill, who's been a, a coach, and she coached us for a year leading into the transition, mm. and she'll coach us for at least a year out of the transition just to say this is how we extract Michael from the role. Sounds very clinical, doesn't it? Well, it's deliberate is mm, the language I would mm, use around mm, it mm. because we both, Shannon and I both have this great intention around how this will work and there's a bunch of things that are that are easy for me to hand over and then we find out the stuff where stuff around power and control and status and rank, all that sort of deeper yeah. psychological stuff is yeah. entangled. Yeah. And that's where we, Shannon and I, need help to figure that stuff out and support. So that's why Jill's in the in the play. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that transition sure. piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, like you said, it, it, for anyone is going through that, and, you, and sometimes you don't even acknowledge all that deep-seated sort of stuff that's going on. Right. What I like as well, what you said about being the CEO, you weren't the best sort of... You said it yourself, I'm not yeah. saying that you were a terrible CEO, but like it's easier. But when we talk to leaders, so mm -hmm. for example, when I work with leaders and talk about coaching, yeah. so the first thing they say is, well, throw it out, what is a coach? What yeah. do you think a coach is? And I think we're so conditioned from kids as being playing sport, a coach is someone they go, yeah, someone that guides you. Like, yeah. Yeah, great. Gives you advice. Yeah, exactly. But that always comes with it. Yeah. And you're saying no, no to exactly. that. And it's actually, you don't need the technical expertise to be a great coach. Can you talk if more it, through that? Sure. So part of the problem with the word coaching mm -hmm. is it comes with a lot of baggage. And it's not even a singular piece of baggage. It's a whole bunch of baggage mm -hmm. from different places. So there is no clear definition of what coaching is, particularly in the context of a corporate life. Mm -hmm. Some people go, oh, yeah, I've met a few life coaches. So they're like, ah, is it all about, I don't know, dreams and visions and stuff? And some people go, well, I've met some executive coaches and... Is it like everybody disappears twice at once a week into a room for an hour? <laughs> is it sports coaching? So yeah. is it about just shouting at people and telling them what to do and telling them how to kick a ball differently? And have your little clipboard. Yeah, a little and, clipboard yeah. and draw X's and, and O's on a thing. Sure. <laughs> so what, what is coaching? Here's my answer. It's an essential leadership skill and leadership behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you want some kind of research around that, I tend to go to Daniel Goleman's article from HBR, mm -hmm. uh, year 2000. Mm -hmm. It's called Leadership That Gets Results. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, actually, based on a bunch of research, there are six core styles of leadership. And each one has its place, and each one has pros and cons. Coaching was one of those styles of leadership. Goleman found that it was the least utilized of the leadership styles, even though it had significant and high-ranking impact on culture, you know, whenever culture eats strategy for breakfast yeah. and the bottom line, you know. So yeah. in our context, it's a leadership behavior and not leadership as in you have to be a VP to do it, but leadership as in if you lead and influence people. And then the way I define it or Box of Crayons, my company defines it, is behaviorally, and the behavior is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Mm. Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? So that's how we think about it. Mm. Our mission at Box of Crowns is in some ways just to try and normalize what coaching is. Mm. Because for a lot of people, coaching is a little bit weird or a little bit HRE or a little bit mm. kind of, you know, 
I'm normal. <laughs> you know, I'm, I run a team in a construction company. Co- well, how's coaching relevant yeah. for me? And I'm like, well, it's about you leading in a different way that will allow your people to feel more engaged and more empowered and more focused on what matters. It'll allow you to get home earlier. It'll allow you to have more impact in the work that you do. That's why you should care about mm-hmm. coaching. I think the hook as well, you didn't mention it, is to be more lazy. Yeah. People love that. And I I think you talk about keeping it real. I think that's why I really, I think The Coaching Habit, why it was such an effective book. Seven questions are great, but the way that you describe it in real language, I love using the word lazy. I just see everyone's eyes light up. I know. It's kind of provocative, isn't it? It's so cool, isn't it? Yeah, because it's so the opposite of what we've been taught, right? Exactly. So the three principles we say are connected to that definition of staying curious a bit longer, rushing to action and advice a little more slowly. Be lazy, be curious, be often. Mm -hmm. So be curious. Again, the language I tend to use is learn how to tame your advice monster, right? Because we've all got this advice monster that wants to jump in and fix it and solve it and, and you know, give it advice and opinions and solutions and insights and actions. Being often, I think, is actually the most radical of those three principles. It doesn't sound it, but what it's saying is that every interaction you have with somebody in person, like you and me right now, over the phone, by email, by text synchronously or asynchronously mm. can be a coaching moment. Mm. So be often is to say every interaction can be a bit more coach-like because after all, it's just about staying curious a little bit longer. But being lazy is the, the provocative one, the one that people like. And it's like, you know what? Stop jumping in trying to fix things, solve things, save the day, doing other people's work for them. Let mm. them do their own work. So yeah, it is such a great yeah, book. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for doing that because like sure. I said the eyes light up. So is there any time where someone, a leader in an organization shouldn't be coach-like? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. I, I really don't want people to think that we've got to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, okay, forget everything you ever learned about management and leadership. You know, it's just stay curious. Mm-hmm. We're on the, what, the 16th floor here. Yeah. The building starts burning down. I'm not going to go, hey, Ian. How do you feel about smoke? <laughs> How do you yeah. feel about not living another day? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. You're like, let's get out of this room and, and do that. So yeah. that's why I keep coming back to that Daniel Goleman article, which is like six different styles of leadership. Each one is appropriate at times. One's democratic, one's a more dictatory. I can't remember what the others are, but they all have their place. Mm. But I do think that more often than not, you can just stay curious a little bit longer and If you try and stop coaching being a big thing, like a capital C coaching, like, okay, it's time for our coaching (laughs) session, okay, and you're like, oh, okay, it's a coaching session. The person coming into that going, I'm being coached now. I know, exactly. I'm being coached now. We're seeing it in your account of coaching, Leanne and Michael. We were so good. It's been a good month working together, but now we're having our coaching (laughs) session, so I've got to try and worry about things and do things differently and... So I'm a bit weirded out and you're like, well, I just, I would normally just manage them or, you know, do our usual thing, but now I'm coaching them. So I've got to be different and suddenly everything gets weird and I'm like, okay, everybody calm down. (laughs) Calm down. There's a place for the formal coaching sessions, Mm -hmm. but for me, my drive is going, let's just make coaching an everyday way of showing up and leading. It's just staying curious a bit longer. So Mm -hmm. it's like, just ask a few more questions before before you start offering advice. And what you may find is you don't actually need to offer advice because they'll figure it all out themselves. And how good is that? Win-win. And how good is that? And it's like lazy, dusting off, exactly. heading home now, job Boom. done. done. Tick. Exactly. <laughs> Motivated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. So just to sum up, you ask some questions, they become more engaged, 
more motivated, have more insight, take more ownership. You do less work. You don't take on their problems. You don't offer up them crappy advice to try and solve the wrong problem because you've stayed curious a bit longer. So they actually have more impact. You work less hard. What's not to like about What's that? What's not to like? Yeah. So does that mean that anyone can be a coach? I think anybody can be more coach-like because it's just like ask a question. Yeah. And let's not make a big deal about how impressive the questions have to be. I mean, as you say in the coaching habit, there are just seven questions. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them is like, what's on your mind? It's the question that you see every day you check into Facebook. So it's not like a big thing. It's That's just to go, what's on your mind? Yeah. You're being more coach-like. Mm-hmm. Then go, okay, what else? What else is on your mind? Oh, there's another question. You just slipped it in. They didn't even notice, right? And now you're coaching, okay? But you haven't gone, I've got my coaching outfit on and this is a coaching session. You're just, you're just asking questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I hop onto LinkedIn, it seems like 80% of the people I'm connected to are coaches. So There's a secret breeding program happening. We can, well done. You yeah. really did like create this movement like, before the coaching habit and after. It's like, yeah. I just need to know these seven questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very unregulated type of industry. You talk about life coaches and yeah. I've got a certain perception when I hear that. Yeah. The people do, I imagine, yeah, I as well. I see you rolling your eyes. <laughs> really? I don't have a poker face. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so like talking to someone externally now, not yeah. even just a leader, someone that's getting paid to coach these executives. Yeah. What makes them special? What, what's their superpower that they can do? This is a big, complicated mm. question. If we're talking about people who are professional coaches, you know, I, you pay me money, I coach you. And to your point, it's an unregulated profession. Mm. So the barrier of entry is, can you say the sentence, I am a coach? And because, what else? Yeah, because <laughs> if you say, I am a coach, you're like, yeah. that's it, you're in. And I do yeah. think there is a lot of mediocrity mm. in the world of coaching. Mm. And, you know, people show up to coaching with good intentions. Like, I like people, I have experience and whatever, I'm just trying to be helpful. Coaching's a good way to do it, and it seems like I could earn a living by doing that. Mm. So the intention is good. But for me, what makes a great coach, there's a few things. There's self-awareness. You've got to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard to help other people know themselves if you don't know who you are. So you've got to understand who you are at your best. I think great coaches that I know have, the phrase I often use is fierce love. Wow. So a fierceness good. to them, which mm-hmm. is like an unwillingness to get in a sort of weird codependent rescue relationship, which I think what happened, it does happen in a lot of coaching that mm-hmm. I see, where I'm like, somehow it, it becomes this collusion of towards codependence and that's great for the coaches because they keep getting the person well, exactly. coming it's back a, to them it's a successful me. business model but it it's, is not, it's not that effective. great in all sorts of other ways yeah so fierce love which i am fully in on supporting you on this and i won't be nice just to keep this relationship going mm. i'll push you a bit mm. on that mm. i think having a background that allows you to be not just an asker of good questions but a teacher because i think that's what a coach is in many ways a mm. teacher based on the Socratic method, say, but there's still a way to say, let me show you something that you don't know. Let me teach you something that you don't know. And so for me, the great coaches have an ability to teach. And I think they keep being aware of the need for two things. One is insight, one is action. Mm. You've got to have insight Mm. around how do you help that person keep learning? And you've got to turn, help that person turn it from, to, oh, I've just seen the world in a new way, or I've seen myself in a new way, into, so what are you going to do differently? So what's the behavior change yeah. that's going to be part of this? 
And so often I see coaching and I'm like, I, what, what happened to the, what's different? You know, after three months or six months, what's different? Mm. You know, how have you changed the way you show up in the world? So minutes to learn, a lifetime to master. It's like chess mm. or some, some ad yeah. for that. And I think the best coaches I see have that fierceness, have that rigor, have that drive to insight and action. You know, my friend David Peterson, who's uh, head of coaching at Google, mm. he's launching a program at the moment, I think through WBEX, which is Ben Croft's online program, the World Business and Executive Coach Summit. He's on a commitment to try and go, there's a lot of good-ish coaches. We need more great coaches. Yeah. How do we get you from here to there? Often they say that good is the opposite of great. Or the enemy. Good the is enemy. the enemy is that of the great. Quote? Yeah, 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 thank you. Yeah. When you were talking about that, the rescuer, mm-hmm. and in your book you talk about the drama I triangle. The, I love the drama triangle, yeah. Yeah, but I love how you use it in the context of, let's move on to facilitation. Sure. The example that you gave in your book is when you arrive to a venue oh, yeah. and the seating plan isn't the way that you wanted yeah. it to look like. Yeah. I think that's all happened to us as facilitators. Right. So as part of our job role, it's like moving furniture. Exactly. So what's your like preferred room setup? Well, the starting point for me is to realize how important the environment is. I think it's a factor that is really underestimated in terms of the impact it can have on the success of a session that you're running. So the question I'm really asking myself is, how do I corral the energy of this room and this group for maximum effect? Sometimes you get into a really big room and you've got a smallish group and you're like, oh, that's bad. Because even though we've got 30 keen people, I'm in a room that could actually seat 200 people and the energy is going to dissipate because it just doesn't have the literal walls around it to contain the energy. So it depends a little bit. The setups that I fear most as a facilitator is the small room with a board table in the middle of it. You know, it's just this huge chunk of wood and you're like, all right, this, this A is a hopeless (laughs) use of real estate. B, it sets up a weird hierarchy because of where people sit. See, it's hard to walk to the person across the room, so now there's limited interaction. D, it means that you're forced to be in the front of the room in a really specific limiting way. So that's Mm. terrible. And then, you know, in some bigger formats where you get to a conference and all the chairs are locked together in a row. So not just in a row, but they're kind of, they've carefully locked them all in place so you (laughs) can't actually move it. So you're like, you're you're wrestling just to try and unlock the Mm. chairs. What I mostly want is a room with no tables or a room with small tables so people can get up and move around. Because for me, the core philosophy about how I design training or a keynote or any intervention is that the wisdom is in the room. Mm. So my job is to find ways of unlocking this group's experience and having them share it with each other. Mm. So how do I make it easy to get up and move around? That's the key thing that I'm asking myself. And then there's a bunch of kind of supplementary things that I like. You know, like, oh, it's a natural light rather than I'm in a basement. You know, a high ceiling rather than a ceiling that's eight foot high, and so we're all kind of stooped under it. Ideally, you know, in one of those hotels where they've painted everything beige, and you're you're like, okay, I'm just feeling my life draining. (laughs) I know, it's like you walk in and it's like the batteries are straining. Exactly. Absolutely. But, you know, for me, ideally, um, it's – The request my team makes when I go to set something up is um, a room, if I'm using a screen, which I don't always use, but sometimes I do, it'll be off to my right or the audience's left as they're looking at me so that I can take the center of the stage. And then the room is set up in a herringbone style. So uh, there's an aisle up the middle, aisle on the sides, 
and then the rows are slightly angled so that it's um, like fishbone, like easy to yeah, sort like, of turn. Like a fishbone, and, exactly, exactly. Easy to turn and see what someone's saying. So everybody's kind of looking in. Yeah. It's a little more focused. The people who are in the far, the back row in the far corner are closer to me than they would be if it was in a straight row. Mm, There's just all that good research that. that says, look, the people, the people who are in the front in the middle just have a hop they retain a bunch more than the people who are at the back and off to the side so it's like how do i make it easy for for more people to feel like they're closer to the mm. middle yeah do you get people to because naturally you see people walk in and just sit next to the people they know do you yeah. challenge that yes so basically <laughs> i mean basically i don't i don't specifically go don't sit next to people you know because now we're into a bit of a, a power battle yes. and part of what i'm always doing is going how do i empower this group and as soon as I'm trying to assert my authority, before I've earned the trust, it doesn't work. Mm. But so what I'll do almost in everything that I do, I'm like, okay, everybody, I'm Michael. It's awesome that you're here. Look, we're going to start right away. Get up, go find somebody you don't know, pair up. I'll tell you what happens next. Mm. And then I'll give them a question or something to do. But almost instantly, I'm getting them up and I'm moving them around and I'm getting them to sit next to people or converse with people that they don't know particularly mm-hmm. well. And I was actually watching your talks at Google presentation. Oh, yeah. well, that and was I, a long time ago, when Jenny Blake yeah, was there. Yeah, so yeah. Jenny was the one who kind of got me in there. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, cool. But what I like, so you did that activity where you get people to pair yeah. up, but then you, then you went through an extra point that I haven't used before. It's like, so the person with the longest hair has to talk first. Right. So you, that's really, I mean, it's such a little... Yeah. sentence but it's so it's gold right it makes people laugh it just sets it a really nice tone i don't know why it makes people laugh but it does i think it's because we you don't usually hear that yeah so underlying all of the design i do as a facilitator mm. is neuroscience of engagement so i talk about it a bit in the book mm. i conned on to the neuroscience through david Rock. rock's stuff the scarf model yeah, I wanted to use his stuff, but he said you, I couldn't even mention it. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just create my own model based kind of loosely on yours. So, I was wondering why Scarf wasn't mentioned because yeah. everything you were saying was like the status of autonomy. You yeah, mentioned yeah. Daniel Pink and I was like, oh, yeah. that's um, interesting. So terror, tribe expectation, rank and autonomy mm-hmm. corresponds to factors within David Rock's Scarf model. But I've, minus, I've taken away the fairness, fairness piece because yeah. it's hardest to teach. So I think tribe expectation, rank, and autonomy. So tribe, how do we, you know, the brain's going, are you with me or against me? So how do I get it more of a with me feeling in the room? Expectation, do I know what's happening? Do I not know what's happening? Rank, am I higher or lower or more or less important than you? And autonomy, are you making the choices or am I making the choices for you? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to find the right balance between that. Mm-hmm. So I want as much of the group's brain power to be dedicated to learning. So for me as a facilitator, I've got to make it everything as clear and as clean as possible as often as I can. There's a bunch of little tricks I use around that. One is core facilitation rule, which is one command at a time. Mm-hmm. Just one command at a time. And it's a very common facilitator mistake is they go, hey, I'd like you to stand up, I'd like you to pair up, I'd like you to find the person and then you're going to have the conversation about the blah, blah, blah. And people just stop listening to you. So I'll go, look, stand up, I want you to find a partner, and I'll tell you what happens next. Good. And then I wait. And then whenever it's like, wait, what are we doing? I'm like, I haven't told you yet, so let me tell you now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when they're paired up, if it's a thing where both people are going to do something, I will direct them on who goes first. So person with the longest hair, person with the biggest feet, person who's tallest, person who has the oldest child, person who has the oldest car, person who has the newest car, person who's traveled furthest to be here, person who's worked at this organization the longest. These are all specific 
factual, non-gender things. Mm. So there's no sort of weirdness associated with it. Not, so I don't go fattest person or, <laughs> you know, occasionally I will go as a joke, you know, so best looking person. That's funny, um, yeah. It's like a stand-up comedy piece. You've got to do the setup before that lands yeah, as a joke. Yeah, that's right. But what I'm doing is I'm just... I'm allowing my stuff to be much more efficient because if I go, okay, so have this conversation, people will go, okay, Leanne, do you want to go first? Should I go first? You go. And so they waste a minute of the two-minute exercise really just do. having that debate. And, <laughs> and now they've wasted their brain trying to think about something that I don't want them to it's think about. Matter. Yeah. So I'm just giving them really clear direction. Nice. Yeah. nice. That's nice. That's a good way of setting up the crowd. Yeah. How do you set yourself up? How do you get prepared for um, – I mean, do you still get nervous? When you present, are you just quite comfortable now? I don't. I get more or less nervous. There are some times that I feel nervous. Mm -hmm. Last month, I coached the head of sales for Microsoft in front of 3,500 people at their big sales conference. So I was like, oh, I can feel the adrenaline there. Hang on, so it's you and him on a stage? Just me and him on the stage together. And, you know, he's like super senior, right? He's head of sales, so he reports to Sacha, the CEO. I'm getting nervous for you. Yeah, exactly. So it was like... It went really well. And honestly, I was like, this is the culmination of 20 or 30 years doing this stuff, having a presence on stage, Mm -hmm. being relaxed, being able to do the coaching and work the crowd and be present to Jean-Philippe. But I could feel the adrenaline beforehand. Mm -hmm. I don't really think of it as nervousness. I think of it as adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And adrenaline's my friend because it helps me perform well. Mm -hmm. So I don't kind of get tangled up going, oh, I'm anxious, that means I'm nervous, that means I'm not going to do well. I'm like, oh, look, this is great. Because if I wasn't nervous, I'd be a psychopath because that's what psychopaths do. They don't have that sort of feeling. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I get a little nervous. So I do a few things to prepare myself. The most common thing that I do is I meet the people in the room. And where I can, I shake their hands. So, you know, you see a lot of facilitators, you come in and they're kind of at the front and they're fiddling with stuff, fiddling with their slides, fiddling with their notes, looking nervous, looking (laughs) self-absorbed. And what I do is I will go stand by the door and I'll just say hello to everybody who walks in, even if I'm doing a keynote. Like I'll do a keynote with 5,000 people and I will shake 300 hands of people walking in, just saying, you know, hi. And A, because it amazes them that the famous speaker Mm. is doing that. Mm. Secondly, it just reminds me that they're just normal people. Thirdly, that touch actually makes them like me more and makes me like them more. So it's a great way of just calming down my nervous system, which is greeting people. Mm. You know, I gave a, a talk this morning. And as people came in, it was set up in a, you know, it was in a university, so they had that classic <clears throat> tiered lecture thing. I know my friends at that. Um, yeah. she, I sh- saw her Instagram and I yeah. saw it was just in one of the lecture hall theaters. Yeah, in one of the lecture hall yeah. theaters. So I'm like, yeah. okay, so there's, no, so I can't, the tables are set, the chairs are on wheels. It's, it's actually relatively spacious so people could get up and move around. But I just spent the 20 minutes before we started walking around saying, hi, I'm Michael, I'm the speaker, why did you come here today? And just talking and shaking hands with people. So it just Mm -hmm. calms me down. And then I used to carry it in my facilitation bag, but then I lost it, so I now carry it in my on my phone. You bought your facilitation bag? Yeah. <clears throat> I thought I'd bring it because, you You're know. You're legend. Yeah. That's so cool. I'll have to unpack that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got a little list of pairs of words. It's my this, not that list. And there's probably seven or eight words on the list. The left-hand column is what I'm like at my best. And then on the right-hand column is the kind of pairing word of when I'm off my game. Not when I'm bad. 
but when I'm just slightly off my game. Mm-hmm. So it has pairs of words like hold it lightly, don't take it too seriously. Step forward, don't step back. Mm. Be provocative, don't be sycophantic. There's a, a thing I wrote called the Manifesto of Insignificance, which basically says, look, we're, this is basically nothing you do matters that much because in 100 years' time, nobody cares. Do you know how refreshing that is? I tell myself that too. Yeah. I love telling myself that. Yeah. Yeah, in the world of facilitation, <laughs> I'm like, nobody cares. I mean, the worst you can do is just screw it up and it's a terrible training room and somebody shouts at you and you're like, oh, if that's as that's bad as it is, <laughs> it's an awesome life. It's an awesome a great life. story, right? Yeah. And a great learning experience yeah, too. Exactly. Yeah. So I have this little thing which, if I'm really feeling off my game, I'll look at that and remind myself of what I'm like at my best. And it kind of connects actually to where we started the conversation around what's a peak moment. So a lot of those words come from me remembering what peak moments were for me Mm -hmm. and going, okay, that's what I'm like Mm -mm -mm. when I'm rocking it. Nice. I think we should all have something like that. Yeah. And then I'll just, if I've got a real kind of a bunch of adrenaline, I'll just bounce. So I'll just stand on the spot and just bounce up and down. What do you mean? Like just jump? Like literally like, just jump. Like, 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 like imagine I'm on a, you're on a trampoline a but without a trampoline. Yeah, exactly. Hopping and jumping. And yeah, I'm just bouncing because it's actually dispersing my nervous energy yeah. and it's lifting my heart rate and actually lifting my energy. So when I show up on stage, I'll have a higher, a higher energy. That's yeah. you're the first person that's ever mentioned bouncing. Yeah, I got it from a documentary I saw from Tony Robbins. You know, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not your guru or you yeah, are not yeah, my yeah. guru or... Mm. Bob is not, whoever. I'm like, there are things about Tony Robbins I'm, I'm less keen about, but he's a really dynamic performer. And he, and he he trampolines before he gets That's on. Right. So I just, I don't have a trampoline I carry with or me. A or a freezer. Yeah, exactly. Like, he gets yeah. in that cold room. That's and right. I've actually been to one of his things oh, cool. four days. I was like, how the hell does he keep this up? Yeah, exactly. So show us what's in your facilitation sure. toolkit. And we, if you're listening to the podcast, we'll... Boy, well, you should be watching the video if you're listening to this. This is gold dust right here. I've got the same tape. Perfect. I love this tape, yeah. So painter's tape, which means that it goes on and goes off easily. And you can use it to stick things on the wall, so flip charts and the stuff. But I will often use it to lay out an exercise on the floor. So, you know, if I want... I can just put a a cross on the floor and go, you go in that corner, you go in that corner... So I can design interventions and make them up on the spot with my painter's tape. And in this thing, it's just index cards, uh-huh. because honestly, I can do the same with index cards. With painter's tape, with index cards, and with some Sharpies, you can rule the world, right? Everything burns down, you've lost your computer, the technology <laughs> doesn't work, the sound guy has betrayed you and has, like, ruined everything. So you're like, okay, I can just design something in the moment there. I had that happen in Singapore the other day. So, the, like, I had MacBook, nothing yeah. nothing links to MacBooks, yeah. old-school projectors, and the, the AV guy was, like, really... It's like, oh, my gosh. He was What's a Mac? I've never seen yeah. a Mac. Oh, it's only the most popular laptop yeah. in the world. Yeah, like, come on, man. And I was like, don't worry about it. I don't even need it. Yeah. And just how nice that is. Yeah. Just be like, I don't have to. I don't need exactly. it. Don't worry about it. Just, okay, I, cool. So three things. That so are there's a kind of, yeah, make your own thing. Yeah. I've got these big uh, Sharpies, so a Magnum Sharpie. So I increasingly use a pre-written flip chart to teach from because nobody has ever said, you know what I need more of in my life? I need more PowerPoint. So it allows me to be create a different experience mm. for people because I'm like, well, oh, where's the technology? It's like, there is none. It's just a flip chart. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, I can play around with it more. So I use it as a, a prop, like drama around oh, that. Okay. And if I'm writing on a flip chart, I want people to write 
be able to see it. And when they write with a normal flip chart, it's too thin. So this has a really kind of big, hefty tip. Nice. So I can write big and I can write fast. It's like the AK-47 of facilitation. It, it, it totally is. The session I run that I use the flip chart most is called the five-question leader. And the, the opening uh, flip chart page has just got a big five on it. So I'm just like, change hands, just going, five. And I'm like, and that's like, cool. What's he going to do next? Yeah, exactly. And do, yeah. So I do it all pre-written because I don't want to term, I don't want to write one. I've got the audience there because I'm too slow and they're bored. Yeah. So it's all pre-written, but it's nice and big and it's a bit rough. And people like it when it looks a bit kind of handmade and a bit mm. rough. It diminishes. Mm. Coming back to... The perfection. And- well, coming back to the terror model and the rank, it's one of those little ways that you lower your own rank. And therefore, you raise the audience's rank. Yes. Because, you know, there's like, oh, he's hand-drawn his flip charts. How good is He's not that good. Or mm-hmm. he's, rather than having a very polished slide deck, which yeah. can be a little alienating. Really? That's, yeah. So yeah. I have a clock. <laughs> this is a ridiculously expensive clock that I bought 15 years ago. But what I like about it is it's round, it's big letters, and it means that I'm not checking my phone when I go, you've got three minutes to do this. Mm. If you check your phone, you just make everybody else want to check their phone. So I'm a big fan of going, have a non-phone clock somewhere so you can use that to time the bits and pieces that mm. you're, you're facilitating around. Nice one. Tissues, because I've got a cold at the moment. And then the our little bells. You've got a nice case for yours. I've got a nice case for yours. And I'm going to say, and I hope you don't mind me saying that. You can say it. These are off eBay, so. Yeah, so these Tibetan bells, which I think are a great facilitator t- uh, tool, there's basically two levels of quality my level and your level (laughs) my level is just heavier and going to have a cleaner ring your level is a little lighter a little cheaper a little tinier yeah it's like it's it's a slightly substandard but it's tricky because you're like i don't know how do i even tell because i'm buying them on ebay no this is why you're here this is the only reason i'm here is to just check out your tibetan belts (laughs) so i i had a beautiful pair because I, oh, I live nice. in little Tibet, uh, little Nepal, or close to it in Toronto. Mm. So I've got Nepalese stores everywhere. And I have spent a lot of time in Nepalese stores picking up bells and testing them because I will buy them for our facilitators a box of crayons. But if you feel the weight of that, it's oh, like wow. just it's more substantial. That'll put me than over yours. the um, luggage limit yeah, exactly. and carry on. Yeah. And now I That's need to show you how to use them. Okay. Because here's what most people do. They go, here's how I ding my bells, and they, they do it like that. Yeah. Rookie mistake. <laughs> okay, sure. Total rookie mistake. Because, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Do you want me to hold your mic while you do so, this? No, I'm, You're all good. this is because I'm a master facilitator. I can hold a mic yeah. and ding bells at the same time. You hold it so your fingers are tied against the top of the bell because it's only the rims of the bell that ring. So you can actually touch the bell. You put them so they're 90 degrees to each other. Mm-hmm. And now you control your ding, so, or you can give it a real a real bang if That's you want to beautiful. do that. And it means that you have a much more controlled dinging experience rather than the whole <laughs> yeah. waving the bells around going, I hope they're going to connect at some stage around here because it's getting awkward. Yeah, so there we go. There's my bells. Awesome. And Thank you so much for that demo. That's what I keep in my um, little facilitator I need to kit. upgrade. Yeah, but these, I mean, that, yeah, you're right, they have been cheap, but they have been so effective. And people, like, it's just a beautiful sound. And exactly. Just, everyone just turns around. And some of the first feedback I got when I was a facilitator, I was co-facilitating with someone very experienced. And at the end of the first session, she's like, how do you think you went, Leanne? I thought, oh, look, I thought everyone was really engaged. And, and she's like, 
did you know that you kept saying the words pens down after every activity? Like, I just would be like, pens down, pens down, pens it down. Could, it could have been pants down. Would have been <laughs> it would have been, much worse. Yeah. That would have been really awkward. You would have been up for some sort of yeah. HR yeah. thing. <laughs> but, yeah. Luckily, I work in HR. So. <laughs> there we go. And she said, people were ready to throw their pen at you. So this has just been a godsend. Perfect. Just the perfect way to. Nice. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that kit with us. I've actually got a friend, Tim Pence. He outsources his facilitation, uh, sorry, his flip chart prep work. Oh. Yeah, so he gets the templates and gets someone to draw them up for him. Okay. So really there cool. Another way to remove yeah. yourself from the business. Exactly. So, Michael, finally, what's your advice for first-time facilitators, people that are just starting out, apart from buying all these cool tools? What do you think they need in their brain? or their Well, let me ask confident? you this. What's the best advice you've heard so far for first-time facilitators? What have people already suggested so I can suggest I know what you're something doing else? To me. Uh, I think the best advice... I'm being, I'm being lazy if you haven't picked this up. <laughs> ...is definitely to just get time on your feet, I think, mm-hmm. is to observe what you enjoy in workshops and what your favourite facilitators are doing, what is authentic would work for you, and yep. then just start trying to practice that when you are right. in front of a room. I'm more biased to that because that's how I learnt. Yeah. Yeah. So for me... Where first-time facilitators, in fact, regular facilitators most often go is I need to master the content. Mm. And I think the content, it can be a bit seductive. Because here's the thing. You can get your content 80% right, but if you're a really strong facilitator, people will love the session. Mm. You can get your content 100% right, but if your facilitation is weak, you failed. So the thing that I try and teach the people who I train in facilitation is... You are the strongest signal in the room, so what's the signal you're giving off? And I want people to be in front of a room with a presence that is confident and relaxed and playful, so there's a lightness and there's a gravitas at the same time. So I spend a lot of time helping people think about their energy and their presence in front of the room. And the other thing I end up spending a lot of people trying to take the, their attention off just the content, is on the transitions. So if you think of the content as bricks in the wall, your transitions are the mortar, the cement that holds the wall together. Mm-hmm. If you know how to start strongly, if you know how to give your commands clearly, if you know how to move crisply from one piece of content to the next piece of content, that makes for a much cleaner experience. So my key advice to first-time facilitators is it takes time on your feet to master the content. Mm -hmm. So the first few times you run something, you're just striving to be barely adequate. (laughs) That's it. Like, go for barely adequate because setting any higher standard than that, you just disappoint everybody, including yourself. (laughs) So you're like, you know... Barely adequate. Barely adequate. (laughs) I mean, you don't want to be inadequate because then you failed, but just adequate means good enough. So you're like barely adequate. Yeah, that's good. And if you're barely adequate with the content and you have the right energy in the room, people will love you. Mm. So think of energy, think transitions. And then, you know, little masterful things like one command at a time can really help with that. That's amazing and and I think very reassuring for a lot of listeners that are trying to find their feet in the world of facilitation. Michael, thank you so much for everything. Uh, It's been such an awesome conversation (laughs) and just a true treat to meet you and big fan of your work. So um, if people want to sort of reach out to you or find you, where can we send them? That is a good question. So Box of Crayons is the name of my company and it's probably not interesting to almost everybody because it's it's mostly about selling training to big companies. So I'm going to say to people, Look to this URL, theadvicetrap.com. It's the name of my new book. It comes out February, end of February 2020. 
you'll find me there. You'll find some downloads from the old book, The Coaching Habit, from the new book, TheAdvicetrap.com. So maybe there's a, a, a good place to go. We'll send them there. Yeah. And um, we didn't even talk about that, but I can't wait to hear more about it when it does come out. I'm yeah. sure you'll be on a ton of podcasts. I probably very, will be. Very yeah, visible. Exactly. Thanks again, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.